Today is Sunday, November 8th, 2015, and this is episode 138 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you doing, sir? I'm great. How are you? Good. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to everybody we did not record last week. My fault. Had too much going on, so. Yeah, I was pretty busy, too, so I, I, can't, I can't blame just you. But, uh, but we're back today. We're That's back right. This week. That's all that matters. That's true. I mean, there was crying. There was, I, I even had one fan self-immolate outside the compound because Ooh. we didn't record last week. You want to talk about guilt? Wow. That's... I know. I know. Wow. So that was a mess to clean up, too. Anyway, yeah, so was. hey, let's, uh, what's new and exciting? How's, uh, how's life in the InfoSec world? It's um, been busy. How about you? Uh, busy, busy. I think Bob was off the coast of California last night. Yeah, he um, he apparently did something with a submarine. I, I it's it was a little he get, weird. It's, he gets around. Yeah. Anyway, it's crazy. Caused a big it, big panic though. It, it, Fortunately, somebody disabled the warhead, from what I understand. So, I'm not saying it was North Korea. Yeah. But yep. It was North Korea. <laughs> so. <laughs> I still think we were shooting down aliens. Illegal aliens? Maybe. That seems a harsh way to... Anyway, let's not get into politics. So you want to talk about some stories? Yeah, well, first off, we have to remind our listeners that our thoughts and opinions ex- expressed on the show are ours and do not represent those of our employers. So That's true. So with that, we will uh, get into our stories, the first of which comes from Ars Technica, and the title is... Crypto email service pays $6,000 ransom, gets taken out by DDoS anyway. However, I'll warn you right up front, it's a bit of misleading headline. Yeah, it's a, it's an in, kind of a complicated story. So mm-hmm. uh, the deal here is that a you know secure email provider named ProtonMail was DDoSed off the internet, I guess it was last week, uh, and... Basically, they they received a uh, threatening letter requesting ransom for them not to uh, uh, DDoS them, and I guess they you know they DDoSed them for fifteen minutes, showed them that they were serious, then they backed it off, and then um, after they hadn't paid, they started. Uh, now, w- apparently, what happened is that the the DDoS attack was so huge. It was actually taking out their ISP as well and quite a few other customers. So not just this ProtonMail organization. It was taking out lots of other organizations. So apparently there was some big joint decision to pay the ransom to make the the attack go away. And, um, you know, and they, they did pay it. Now here's where it gets a little weird. So they, uh, the, the DDoS attackers allegedly stopped... However, they were still this ProtonMail was still under attack, uh, even even though they had paid the ransom. And in fact, the people who had extorted them contacted ProtonMail, saying, "Hey, 
you're you appear to still be under attack. That's not us. So, so somehow, some way, these guys came under two different DDoSs at roughly the same time. Yeah, and it sounds like I mean, if you if you read the article, it sounds like the attack launched by the extortionists was just a simple volumetric attack. But apparently, there was also simultaneously. Uh, what was described here is a much more sophisticated attack not seen in any other attacks on Swedish uh, companies before. Because so, Proton Mail is based in Sweden. Correct. Just as a little background. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting time frame. So the original, if we want to call it simplistic, DDoS started around 11 a.m. And it was big. I mean, it was hitting uh, you know, up to... Uh, they don't really give the stats, but it was big enough that it was hurting. But around 2 p.m., the attackers, uh, and this may be a separate group. This is what's interesting. This may be a different DDoS or maybe the same. We're not sure. It's, it's, it's implied it's a separate group. But around 2 p.m., a new type of DDoS started spinning up, and it was exceeding 100 gigabits per second. And it was not only going after the data center – it was actually going after a bunch of routers in Zurich, Frankfurt, and other locations for the ISP. Uh, it had brought down the data center for ProtonMail. The ISP impacted hundreds of companies. And what's interesting in this, and, and part of this is also sort of being based off a blog post that ProtonMail put out. But there's a quote in here that, that I again, this is, this is like one of my trigger terms. Uh, so warning, trigger term coming. Uh, so, uh, yeah, actually warnings about triggers are starting to become a trigger, which is a different problem. Anyway, they're saying the second attack was much more sophisticated and uh, exhibited behavior of a state-sponsored attacker. There's that state-sponsored attacker. Because only a state-sponsor could have a sophisticated DDoS, apparently. That's true. They don't actually say what specifically uh, made them think it was in the realm of a state-sponsored attack. However, you know, my as far as I could tell, it's, it seems like the the attacks are actually going after some infrastructure components of their upstream providers rather than they themselves. Yeah, yeah. And to quote them, it just said that it was more technically sophisticated and it was uh, targeting weak points in the infrastructure of their ISPs. Yeah. So what's also interesting is that so ProtonMail also put out a very, very, very firm statement uh, that they paid this, this ransom under you know consultation with everybody being impacted, and it was causing hundreds of thousands of Swiss francs and damages by all these other companies. So they went ahead and paid it. And, but the attacks continued nonetheless. Now, whether or not it was the same group still attacking them is somewhat up in the air. Even though the first group denied it was them. Anyway, point being, Proton Mail said, quote, this was clearly a wrong decision, so let us be clear to all future attacker, attackers. Proton Mail will never pay another ransom, end quote. Now, what's interesting about this is depending on how you read the article and, and depending on what you believe, them paying the ransom actually stopped the first DDoS. And coincidentally, I guess, apparently, a second, more sophisticated DDoS spun up at the same time. Yeah, and, you know, at some point, you lose that you lose that sense that things are coincidental. <laughs> but you know, what's interesting is because of the second attack affecting 
hundreds of customers. It could have been, it could have been a quiz, and it could have been, you know, law large numbers that somebody else just happened to be targeted at the same time. Certainly, I don't know. Certainly possible. <laughs> well, I, I think the thing that the thing that makes me wonder is that it eventually stopped. Well, you know, DDoS first get bored. I mean, they've got to go have their hot pockets and Doritos at some point. But not state sponsored <laughs> DDoSers. <laughs> yeah. And, so wrapping back to the headline. The headline implies that they paid the ransom and the guys took the ransom and still kept DDoSing them. We're not sure that that actually happened. Somebody kept DDoSing them. It may have been the same group. The, the, the group who originally took the ransom denies it, which in some ways makes sense, right? They want to maintain credibility just like crypto lockers that if you pay us, we'll stop to encourage people to keep paying them. Right. So this gets all sorts of convoluted. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that I, I think the you know the issue is for for us. You know, it's it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't uh, type of situation. Now, I I have not heard of another situation like this. I don't know that it's all that common for organizations to pay the ransom, but at the same time, I'm not sure there's a lot of um, you know a lot of tracking that goes on to to tell when people do. So. I believe that this type of extortionist DDoS is very common. Uh, I know of a number of companies that have had extortionist demands with small-scale DDoS attacks thrown at them. Uh, and for you know a relatively small amount of money, say, hey, we won't do it. We won't continue to do it. I think that happens all the time, especially in the financial services industry. Um, I have no idea how often people pay those those ransoms. That's I think that's the key. Yeah, that's the key. And you know they point out here that their proton mail is going to try to uh, set up some infrastructure improvements that will you know, mitigate this kind of thing. And I suspect basically they're going to subscribe to uh, you know some commercial DDoS mitigation service like Prolexic or what have you. But that's really expensive. And they're, it they're, is. They're and saying, the question is, how effective are they against "quote unquote" state-sponsored sophistication level of DDoS? Well, I wonder that as well. That's a that's a really good question because, um, you know, I, I don't know. That's that's I think the million-dollar question. I do think these sorts of DDoSs are going to become more prevalent, and we're seeing over time a continual march higher in the volume of DDoSs. So, one takeaway for me. Uh, to, to share with the listeners is you really need to war game out what a DDoS would do to your organization against various links and components. Uh, you know, a lot of folks, I recommend try to put your main website and main stuff out in a content delivery network. Let them take the take the hit and, and try to split. If, if you're doing any sort of production over the internet, uh, I try to split that off from you know, office work connections and, um, you know, other types of connections so that you could sustain a DDoS against part of it, but it's, you know, going at a data center that isn't where, you know, your operational stuff may be. Yeah, absolutely. I also know from, from, from some experience that even with a, even with a CDN, some of these DDoSers are getting pretty, pretty clever at uh, figuring out the source of the content and then yeah. still DDoSing it. So I know that's, um, you know, that's been a game that's been going on for, for a while. I, I did talk to Bob the other day and I think he might've been 
know, maybe Syria, I don't know. But he was telling me that sometimes what folks will do is that he'd been involved with was during the DDoS, try to move whatever the effective equipment is under attack into a, a Prolexator CDN during attack. But I'll tell you, that's a very expensive route to go. Uh, while you're under attack and you know my recommendation like most of the time we talk about these things is you're much better off having a plan and having the capability built up when you're not under attack than trying to react to the attack itself absolutely yeah ddos is definitely one of those ones where it's you know it's kind of like a disaster recovery plan it doesn't work work real well to uh you know to to try to set it up while while the uh the thing is going on so um this is this is definitely something you want to if it is important to you something you want to have uh, in place. You know, I think the other thing is that that strikes me is you know, proton mail isn't a particularly, you know, controversial or high profile target, you know? And, yeah. and, and yet, you know, here, here we are talking about this, uh, you know, them being the, the probable victim of two separate simultaneous uh, DDoS attacks. And then I think the other lesson too, is to consider that, when you're in a shared hosting facility, you know, and, and uh, one of the other customers comes under attack, uh, like apparently hundreds of other customers of this ISP uh, went dark. And, you know, what would your ISP do in that in that case? In this particular case, they ended up, the ISP ended up having to remove the announcement of this, uh, of ProtonMail's IP addresses. Yeah, and that is an interesting problem as well. Uh, you know, if you've got some critical operations, it's not just you that you need to worry about. You may need to worry about who else is on that ISP and what, how well equipped your ISP is to handle somebody else in their environment being attacked. Exactly. exactly. You know, there may be a small point of uh, political or, you know, otherwise motivation from their original blog post. ProtonMail was originally created to provide privacy to activists, journalists, whistleblowers, and other at-risk groups. And we have many of those people in the ProtonMail community. Uh, continuing, unfortunately, these groups are out, there are groups out there determined to oppose this, which has led to this incident. So ProtonMail is alleging that there are people opposed to the type of uh, users they supply services for, and that led to this DDoS. I would counter that and saying this sort of extortion DDoS is common across all sorts of areas and probably had nothing to do with who they are or who's using their services. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, you'll never, one of the, one of the challenges is that you'll never, you probably never really get a good handle on what other customers are, are in kind of sitting next to you. Right. Um, Right. That's that's a that's a big challenge because if you've got you know if you have some high profile targets and I'm not again I'm not saying this, these guys were I get your point and and from that from that angle I can see why they might be targeted but uh, you know this is something to think about. You know, last thing I want to kind of say on this is we often see DDoSs as a distraction technique for some other uh, type of intrusion or attack. So it's something we, we sort of beat on here. We don't know that in this case, but I will say for folks who, who are thinking about DDoS, try to remember that those are often used as a distraction. So if you're thinking of a DDoS plan, try to keep some of your infrastructure folks in reserve and that not have everyone jump onto fighting the DDoS because most likely 
I shouldn't say most likely, but in a good chunk of percentage of DDoSs, we're seeing other nefarious activity taking place at the same time that the DDoS is there to distract your team. Yeah, and I would actually go so far as to say, you know, if you if you do fall under a DDoS attack, um, depending on the line of business that you're in, you may want to actually uh, heighten your senses in other areas. Yeah, because it it, it is um, possible that that it's a smokescreen. So, anyway, moving on to our next story. This one also comes from Ars Technica, and the title is. Booming crypto ransomware industry employs new tricks to befuddle victims. Uh, there was one really specific thing that I wanted to, uh, reason I wanted to bring this one up, and it is because of this uh, new, uh, I don't know if it's how new it is, right? But it's a, a newcomer, as they call it here, called Chimera, which is just another you know flavor of ransomware. However, it has a... Uh, a twist, which not only does it encrypt your files, like all ransomware lately does, it also threatens to disclose your files on some public website. Now, apparently that's not actually been seen, and it's not even very clear if that actually, uh, if this malware has the technical capability to do that. However, uh, it is an interesting twist because you know, historically, we've talked about crypto, you know, crypto ransomware for a while now, because it's becoming a, a really big problem, uh, which can be pretty well mitigated if you have good backups. However, that game changes if the malware now has the ability to potentially disclose your files on the internet, and um, you know, this is this is a new inter- interesting new dimension. It is, certainly. Uh, the other interesting point is it gives you an opportunity to perhaps detect the data exfiltration technique as another way to. Right now, in general, most of the time, the only thing that these ransomware things are exfiltrating is usually the encryption keys. Right. Uh, if we're now exfiltrating full data-sized files, maybe, hopefully, you've got something to detect that, maybe. Uh, you know, along with this, there was another piece of ransomware news that came out that there's another piece of ransomware that's going after Linux servers, uh, looking to encrypt uh, files related to web hosting, web servers, uh, MySQL, Subversion, Get, uh, various other technologies used in web development HTTP servers. So now they're starting to go after, uh, you know, in essence, disruption of production services. Yeah. Uh, You know, unrelated to this particular article here, but we're seeing ransomware start to evolve and people are getting more clever with how to leverage this ransomware. Yeah, and in fact, I think there was the, a, a pretty controversial publication by the FBI recently about, um, you know, that I don't know exactly how they characterized it, but, uh, you know, it, it seems like the controversy was centered around the the recognition by the FBI that in some cases it makes sense to pay the ransom. Yeah, it's a tough call. Uh, I don't... I really look at the FBI saying, look, we're we're being honest with you. This is not something that you're going to call your local IT guy and he's going to fix for you. Right. This is really hardcore encryption. And if it's really important to you, you need to understand that there may not be a way to fix this. 
Yeah, that was my, I think that was my read of it too. The I think that the challenge though is just like with the, the previous story, it kind of creates a moral hazard, right? Because if you start paying, uh, if you start paying the ransom, it, it just makes this industry grow and it perpetuates certainly. And, you know, it might not necessarily be, especially in the case of ransomware, um, it's it's not usually a targeted type of attack. It's you know just kind of you know big big net uh, being cast. Uh, but the more money that gets pumped into this from an industry perspective, the more players you're going to get, and the more the more sophistication there's going to be. And it's clearly an effective technique. Yes, it's working for the bad guys. You know, for me, one thing I was thinking about is you mentioned earlier that backups were a good way to mitigate this. Uh, and for me, what this says as well is that we now have to reevaluate our backup strategies uh, and sort of update them against what all the original backup strategies were really built around, which was drive failure and corruption of data and that sort of thing, uh, which in many ways are accidental. So backups are no longer reasonably should be looked at as only a mitigation of those original threat vectors. And by threat vectors, I mean the accidental threat vectors of drive crashing, accidental deletion, you know, mistakes. Now it's a primary defense against, uh, you know, active offensive actions being taken against your files. Right. And, and that really needs to be factored into the ROI and the considerations of your backup schemes and strategies. And, that probably changes the equation of how much money you should spend on your backup strategies. The ROI just changed dramatically as this is starting to flourish. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, but backups have been kind of that thing we don't think a lot about. It's a solved problem for a lot of people, but uh, I don't know that, that that I think it's worth a good, hard second look in the era of, of crypto locking. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, it's, Specific to this, you know, the, the the particular issue here in you know the novel thing is again that the the data they're threatening to disclose the data, not just encrypt it. And you know, again, I I'm not actually writing any technical details about how the data is exfiltrated. You know, if is it is it being exfiltrated? You know, assuming that this capability actually exists and it's not just a paper tiger. Um, you know, is the data ex- exiting in its encrypted form or in, in an unencrypted form? And you know, because that's a different different way to look for it, right? You know, it's, it makes data loss prevention a little more difficult if um, you know if it's being encrypted on the way out. Um, it, it really does start to point to the importance of egress filtering, just kind of broad based egress filtering, and in my view, also. A segmentation and isolation of important things away from, you know, your web browser and your email. Yep. So. But much easier said than done. But that's yes. right. Absolutely. So uh, yeah. So watch this space. Uh, I think um, ransomware seems both really, you know, when you pair this with the the previous story, it does seem like there is a robust ecosystem and economy developing around the concept of ransom based attacks whether it's you know on the endpoint or in the 
you know, in the network. And I do wonder what's next. You know, this seems like a, a, an area that has some rapid development. I would agree. And a lot of people have asked recently, okay, so what do I do to stop ransomware? And the reality is ransomware is really the payload that could be attached to any type of exploit against the endpoint or a server. So there is no one magic defense against the original compromise. It is the same defense you would take against any type of malware. Uh, So you got to remember that there is an exploit component and a payload component, and they could be completely separate beasts. That's right. You you had mentioned the the Linux ransomware that's, you know, that's... um, been discussed recently there's not a you know, there's there's been quite a bit of analysis about the actual malware however the the actual delivery mechanism isn't known that's speculated to be that you know it's coming in through ssh and, and weak passwords uh, but again that's not known but i think to your point you know it can come in through web-based you know, drive-by exploits it can come in on an email attachment, you know, flash drive, um, a Trojan download. You go and download some piece of software. Um, you know, there's there's a, a, a whole host of ways that this stuff can happen. And, you know, I, I think phishing or, or really uh, email-based delivery of malware is, is constantly in kind of a neck-and-neck uh, race with drive-by downloads, you know, or, or drive-by exploits. And so, you know, one year, one will be up higher than the other, and then it'll flip-flop. So, um, you know, there's, there's, if you can take care of those two vectors, you're going to solve a lot of the problem. But, you know, again... <laughs> Much simpler said than done. Exactly. <laughs> it's a very, very complex issue. Exactly. Um, so, and, you know, in general, our our sort of charter for the show is to try to take away some lessons learned and uh, some something to help us make our lives easier long term but uh this is a tough one this is a tough one yeah i mean cer- certainly on uh, from an endpoint perspective and and also from a a server perspective i i think whitelisting will do will go a long way yeah you took the words out of my mouth uh whitelisting good file identity uh File integrity monitoring, good right. backups, good separated version and control of your backups. Don't have just one version of backup that automatically happens whenever a file changes because you'll just back up the encrypted file. <laughs> How'd that work out for you? Uh, That's right. You know, it's but yeah, I'm a big fan of whitelisting. Now I'll tell you, whitelisting is can be a challenge for a lot of organizations to implement. Uh, it really does remove a lot of flexibility in an environment if you don't run it very very properly. Um, and a lot of people are very gun shy of whitelisting, but it's very effective. It's not perfect, but it's very effective. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, you know, I think the other the the other thing that I will mention is that my observation. Um, especially from after talking with Bob, a lot of the a lot of the historic protections against this that not not whitelisting specific things like removing administrator rights and um, you know antivirus are, are really ineffective, right? Because the, this runs generally in the context of the user, and all it needs to do is have the ability to write to the the data files. 
which the user already has but rights the user to. User anyway. has rights to anyway, and <laughs> yeah. and also on uh, on file shares too. So, um, you know, the, it, it is becoming, in my view at least, more important to entertain the the options available that more affirmatively drive control on these endpoints because you know this kind of handling things by exception is really not working anymore yeah so. i would agree but it is by far the 95 percentile of what people are doing oh absolutely and 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 it it's that way for a reason right this is mm-hmm. and doing it any other way historically has been very expensive and i suspect that as time marches on vendors will hopefully figure out some you know ways to make this more palatable but i uh, i think in general we're not there yet yeah agreed so moving on to our next story which comes from the register and the title is anti-ad blocker firm page fairs users hit by fake flash update oh the pain this, and the irony this is so awesome so <laughs> and by awesome i mean terrible yeah so um you're in awe of the terribleness <laughs> yes so uh, as as ad blockers become more common, uh, th- that becomes a big problem for the content companies, you know, the, the websites, uh, the news websites and, and whatnot, because that's how they make the money, right? They make the money with ads. If you have an ad blocker on your, com- uh, on your browser, you're not looking at their ad and therefore they're not making money off of you. So there's been a cottage industry kind of set up to help um, these content companies figure out if you're running an ad blocker. And one of those companies is named PageFair. Now, the ultimate irony to me is that a lot of people are sensibly blocking ads because you know, as we've talked about so many times on before on the show, banner ads and ads in general are being used to deliver exploits to your computer. Yeah, it was amazing when ad blocking first debuted on iOS devices, the amount of moral outrage that that generated. And in my mind, until the ad industry can prove that they are malware free, to hell with them. Yeah. Yep, and and so so here we have this company named PageFair, who, um, as as they describe it, as the register describes, is an ad blocker blocker. <laughs> so, so they uh, they give apparently the content providers some uh, control over what you might or might not see if you have an ad blocker running, uh, but that does in fact require PageFair to uh, to inject some JavaScript into your browser to actually see what's going on. And uh, in this particular case, someone fished an employee of PageFair and got credentials on their, contra- well, I guess it's one of their content distribution networks, and, um, and replaced the normal PageFair JavaScript with some malicious JavaScript, which delivered... A, uh, a, a an offer for a flash update, which was actually malware, and it was um was wasn't just any malware. It was pretty interesting a story in in and of itself. It was uh, this thing called Nanobot. I think it's is it um, I think it's Nanobot, right? Yeah, yeah, Nanobot. That's right. Yeah. A- anyway, it's a uh, it's a remote administration tool, right? It's 
<laughs> it's supposed to be a legitimate application, and uh, and so so apparently the the attacker here modified it a little bit and used this otherwise legitimate tool to uh, to get remote access to people who have installed this thing, and so uh, so eventually in the ensuing uh, aftermath, uh, that that company actually shut off the the attacker's access, so that they were no longer able to. Uh, to have access now, I, I find it interesting. By the way, and we'll talk a little about about the timeline in a second. But I kind of find it interesting that the um, you know, there's an assumption here that once Nanobot turned off access, you know that that, that it, everything was okay again, right? Because you know, not thinking that you know maybe the first thing they did was you know go install something else. You know, whatever. Uh, so anyway, um, it's also interesting to me that they leveraged the concept of a fake Adobe Flash update. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's kind of passe now, isn't it? Well, everybody who is concerned about security and and we've now been conditioned to do patches all the time. So Flash is being patched, I think, on a minute-by-minute basis these days. So <laughs> for, for Flash to pop up, supposedly, with a an update and an automatic update sort of uh, pop-up is something we've now conditioned users to always apply. That's a good point. That's a good point. But but we've I guess we've seen this. This has been a technique for at least 10 years. Yeah. You know, and 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 so it it just is. It's um, it's frustrating that it continues to be so effective. Uh, there's really, by the way, there's really no. I don't think there's any metrics on how many people actually fell for it. They have, they go through an analysis of how many systems they actually think may have been exposed, and you know, it was a cer- certain small percentage of the potential visitors, but. They never really went through uh, an analysis of actually how many specific, uh, you know, systems. It was more of a percentage of the overall visitor base of the their customers, which sounds like it's you know potentially into the tens of millions of visitors per month, but we don't know about what that equates to on a daily basis. So anyway, the, the attack happened uh, over an eighty-three minute period, um, which you know, I, so so I just got done dogging on them. But I actually think that they did some things relatively well. Apparently, they realized this happened uh, within about five minutes of the the attack actually uh, taking place. The um, you know the attackers fished a password from the uh, you know from an employee, and and by the way, all this stuff is very well documented on on a blog post by this company, and they've done a really I think a pretty nice job of. Uh, of, of being transparent about what happened, and anyway, um, it was a, a reasonably well done fish, and uh, that allowed the attacker to do a password reset on the um, you know the, the the CDN account. Um, the attacker was able to get in, replace the code. Now it's not very clear how PageFair became aware that there was something going on, but. Uh, they, they again apparently became aware of it within five minutes, and then they started working the issue. It took about Which thirty is, minutes. You know, fairly good. I think that's I, pretty I, good. Yeah, you got to give them props for that. That that's what I think more of these groups should be doing. But 
you know, you could also say, hey, it shouldn't happen in the first place. But we also know that breaches are going to happen. So detection is absolutely imperative. Yeah. So they they then uh, it took them, I think, another 30 minutes or so to to, to basically start uh, changing DNS. They started undoing DNS settings, their zone settings, pointing to that CDN. And that propagated over a period of time. And then I think it was within within an hour or so they had, you know, they had flushed all that out and, you know, that they felt that they had mitigated the problem. And so, again, the, the, the timeline on their blog post is is pretty elaborate. It's a good read. Um, I got the sense that they really were kind of making it up as they went along, but it, it also sounds like they they had a they had some competent people um, working on the response. So, um, interesting thing. Um, it's frustrating that it happens. I, I, I kind of find the whole thing a little reprehensible because you know they're they're trying to they're trying to stop the thing that delivers the malware that they ended up delivering themselves, which, you know, it's just, it's really frustrating to me. It's an inevitable arms race. It yeah. will continue. I agree. I agree. And it's, it goes back to be careful what you enable in your browser. Yeah. Now there's some interesting things. The, uh, the, the CEO in his blog post goes on to describe how they have changed quite a few of their operational practices to, to help avoid this in the future, things like uh, they, they have changed their all their password recovery uh, you know, for, from their vendors to be a dedicated email address that they don't use for any other purpose. So I think that was that was one interesting takeaway. Um, uh, I'm glad that they say the, all the auth creds have been reset, but they don't say anything about going to two-factor authentication. Well, they did. They did say they went through and uh, in, enabled multi-factor authentication for everything. Oh, that you're they, right. That they could, yep. Uh, yep. and then I they skimmed were, it. Yep. And then they were going to consider replacing any vendors that don't offer multi-factor authentication. Yep. So, I, which is an excellent technique to fight password reuse, which is kind of what we had here. Yeah, definitely. So, um, you know, it's it, it's a. Uh, Certainly not a great thing that it happened. Uh, I think we can take a look at their response and the things that they are doing, uh, the lessons that they've learned, and and learn from, learn ourselves from it. I think that the idea about funneling all of your password resets into one account is an interesting thing. I do wonder about now the risk of that particular account. Right. Right. Now, you know, maybe that's less... Um, you know, it's less risky because it's not necessarily known, right? But uh, it's not known to the attacker. It's not a it's not a used account. But um, yeah, it's there's no perfect solution there. Um, other than again, the multi factor is certainly puts them in a better place. So anyway, uh, moving on to our last story. This one is from Info Security Magazine. And the title is IT personnel are the riskiest business users. This is my shocked face. <laughs> so uh, 
This is a, uh, a, a article about a report from uh, Intermedia. It's called their Intermedia 2015 Insider Risk Report. It's actually kind of an interesting read. Um, it's like 30 pages long, but it's uh, mostly pictures. The takeaway that I I we know with. how much you like picture books. I do, I do, especially like the hard, you know, the ones with the really big, thick pages. Yeah. And the pop-ups. And the pop-ups, that's right. Yeah. We should make a pop-up book about, you know, fishing. <laughs> I like it. Um, Part of our new media empire we're expanding into. That's right. That's right. Um, the The takeaway I, I took from that report, by the way, is that um, the... the the uh, older baby boomers who are only in the job for you know, less than a year are your best employees. You know, the, the long time millennials, you just don't want those. those are bad news. Wait, what? <laughs> well, so, so the, uh, the, the, the report basically goes on. Have to, you been drinking again during the show? I have not. Okay. Cause all right. No, no, no. So, so hear me out. Um, they go through and, and, and analyze the security behaviors of, of uh, employees. I think they sampled 2,000 employees. And they do it on a couple of different dimensions. They do it based on uh, the age group. So they have millennials, generation Xers, and, and then uh, the baby boomers. And they found that on the spectrum, the, on a spectrum, the least risky were the baby boomers and the most risky were the millennials. They, the, the millennials do, you know, uh, they, they share their passwords, store files on personal accounts and things like that at a much greater rate than, uh, than, than the other age groups. Uh, the other dimension they looked at or another dimension they looked at was how long the employees had been uh, with the organization. And well, the, before we get into that, for sure. the first for the first metric, I would say that may indicate those who are more familiar and comfortable with technology are more aware of the capabilities and possibilities and are more inventive in subverting the controls in their environment. I think that's a fair assessment, yeah. Um, although I, you can definitely make that argument if you compare the millennials versus baby boomers, but I'm not sure that you can do that against the, you know, the, the mid-career people. So, yeah. Um, another like was where I was going. Another one of the dimensions is uh, IT versus non-IT industry workers, and and the IT industry workers, so uh, employees of an IT company, are more likely to, to participate in risky behavior than non-IT. Uh, and then uh, um, one of the, uh, a third dimension was IT professionals versus non-IT professionals in the same organization. And IT professionals on most of the dimensions were considerably more uh, more apt to take on risky behaviors like sharing passwords and installing software than their non-IT uh, counterparts, which is kind of a counterintuitive, I think at least, finding. Um, in some in some regards, I, I do think that a lot of IT people, and especially security people, kind of think that they have a magical, um, you know, I guess, fairy dust that surrounds their computers and their fingers that keeps them safe. 
and uh, and so you you have to kind of well we we've heard this many times of of infosec pros too saying you know i don't run av i don't run this at home i just know how to be smart and that might have worked 10 years ago i don't know that does anymore I, i don't think so i think it's very very dangerous especially when you consider that these are the people who also have the highest levels of access which again we keep arguing that you really need to split um the accounts for these folks they need a, a non-admin account for the day-to-day stuff and a, a an admin account for only when they need it and train folks to use it and log the hell out of activities in that admin account yeah, absolutely but it's so rarely done yeah so you know the the only other thing i would say too uh, is that one thing I've seen in my career is sales folks are more than happy to break any and all rules and do a bunch of shadow IT if it helps them get hit their numbers. Well, I think I think they're more likely to get air cover. Absolutely. As long as they're hitting their number, most of the time it's anything's fair game. Right. That's been my experience, is, uh, especially with, with sales and to some extent executives. But mostly sales w- will you know come up with some wacky thing that they that they liked at their previous job or or whatever and uh if they are successful at hitting their numbers or blowing out their numbers you know and you you know you you try to put them back in the box you know a lot of times you're not going to get management support and this kind of goes back to the whole point that you know you really have to have strong support for your program high up in the organization otherwise you're going to end up with swiss cheese yeah Absolutely. I remember in a previous role when we were migrating to a <laughs> an exchange server, we had some, mm, I'll use the term prima donna uh, folks in the IT group who absolutely refused to have any of their email touch a Microsoft product. So we had to maintain multiple email servers uh, for, for those organization uh, folks who refused. And I think that was a mistake. And that came from, hey, these were high performers. They could do whatever they wanted. And, and leadership let them get away with that. And as a result, we weakened our ability to operate our environment as well as we could have. Yeah, and the more, the more complexity you add... Yeah, I'm not, by the way, arguing that Exchange is a better system. I'm saying that we had to maintain two systems with the same staff. Yeah, exactly. It's more complex, right? Right. I'm not, um, and and, anyway, that's another rant for another day. (laughs) (laughs) But it comes back to uh, when you are incentivized to hit a goal and and it has a high leverage on your income, starts to impact people's decision making about security of the company because the, the the goal their individual goals based on their individual paycheck start to become the only thing they look at in a majority of situations yeah and yep. uh you know i'm sure that plenty of salespeople will disagree with that point but that's been my experience in 10 years of sales engineering well you know i i think there is a there is also a counter a counterpoint that says uh it, to some extent this behavior may be indicative that the IT department is not facilitating the needs of you know of the group or of the organization I would agree I would 100% agree with that with that statement for for you know 80% of the time there's always that 20 percentile who are you know oh you want me to use salesforce i hate salesforce i'm not going to use salesforce what are you going to do about it 
<laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, Fair enough. Uh, no, I think I think you're right. I think, and I think what you're hitting on, by the way, is the fundamental problem with shadow IT in general. Yes. If the IT organization isn't able to meet the the goals and the needs of of the business organization, then people will find a way. Right. Right. So, but back to the original article about IT folks being much riskier, I think that's very fair, and I think it's something that we don't look at much. Yeah, and that that was that was the interesting thing to me. And the other the other one, which was was probably the most surprising to me personally, was uh, the uh, the last dimension they looked at was the tenure of the employees, and so the employees who were there the longest had the greatest, you know, they they introduced the greatest risks or had the riskiest behaviors uh, as opposed to people who were there uh, less time. And I thought that was really interesting. And I guess it's, you know, they, they hypothesize that it's because these people are, you know, they're, they're kind of set in, they feel comfortable in the organization and don't feel as much at risk. Whereas somebody who's new to the organization feels like they have to, you know, they, they have to, kind of be rule followers. And uh, those, again, those are just hypotheses. Uh, but it is an interesting thing because I, I, I think the historical view is that most of the risk tends to be con- concentrated on the people who've, you know, who are new to the organization and not, not the long-term people who are, you know, quote, more committed. <laughs> that so, is interesting. So, um, but yeah, I, you know, from a, I think from a, um, from a takeaway perspective, the thing that I would like to leave people with here is, it isn't. It's not all about the users, right? It's it's also the IT department because I really think in many ways, the IT department is glossed over from a security perspective. You know, we are we're, we're given free reign. We we uh, we allow these people in the IT department and in the security department to have the ability to install their own software and bypass the web filters and you know this and that and the other thing and you know that that may be necessary i'm not disputing that it's not necessary what i am saying is that think about the reasons that you do that for the average person and then recognize that there's nothing special about an IT person being able to avoid those threats in today's world. So what are you going to do to mitigate that risk? Right. You have to consider it a high-risk environment and somehow in some way wrap some additional monitoring controls, something around that. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Which just, again, just makes our lives more complicated and more difficult. But hey, (laughs) nobody said security was easy. Uh, And, you know... I think that statement you just made is really important because I, I really do think that this is it's becoming and and I think vendors are a big part of the problem, right? That there's an expectation that security is easy, right? And there should be a way we should be able to allow our employees to to do that, and and we just need to find the we just need to find the blinky box or the piece of software to install in their computer to make that all okay. Damn it. Somebody read a Gartner report and solve this problem for us. <laughs> but at the end of the day, security is hard, right? 
we we have in my in my view in many ways we've lost our way and and we've become very enamored ha, with technology have we lost our way or have we just has the situation progressed faster than we've been able to keep up and we're grasping at whatever life rings are thrown to us on the water that we're swimming in i i i well i think it's certainly i think it's certainly that but at the same time, I think that when I say we've lost our way, I think I think we tend to think about things in terms of products rather than in terms of risks. Yeah, I agree. And and you know, we we've in my view at least and, and partly it's it's I'm sure it's because of the you know, the, the ever expanding complexity of IT environments. It's very hard to wrap your head around them. Uh, but we don't really do, or lots of... Lots and it's the magic pixie dust that these yes. vendors sprinkle in front of us to say, I can make all your problems go away, just sign a check. Right. Right. And we believe it. We do believe it. And and I, I guess what I'm saying is, we I think that we really, as an industry, need to get back to some extent to an actual consideration and analysis of architecture design and risk and understanding how this stuff works and then adding in you know the the, mag, the magic pixie dust where it makes sense with a cogent understanding of its limitations and what it can accomplish and what it can accomplish and and that's what I'm that's my rant for today yeah i would agree and I, I think that we have much more to say on that topic, and, and that's a long, long time to uh, to go through all that. <laughs> yep. So anyway, that's the show. Hope uh, hope you liked it. Uh, if you did, give us uh, some love on iTunes. And uh, if uh, if not, you know, send us an email info at defensivesecurity dot org. Or if you have any questions, comments, whatever. We are a little behind on emails. I apologize. I know I owe some people some responses. Working on it. Yeah. Life, <laughs> life happens. We, we, we uh, and this is a weird but good problem to have, now get more more emails and tweets than, than we can keep up with, which I never anticipated. So no. I'm sorry if I have not had a chance to uh, respond to your email yet. Damn it, Callet. I know. I know. I'll, you can dock my pay. <laughs> And uh, you can find uh, links to the stories we talked about on our website, www.defensivesecurity.org. And you can also find all of our 137 back episodes. And uh, with that, we will talk again next week. Thanks a lot for listening and uh, have a good one. Have a great week, everybody. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.